You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because it keeps me from writing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The more time I spend world building, obviously the less time I have to think about what I'm actually going to write. Absolutely true. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is Charlene Harris. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 91, Making the Incredible Credible. Listeners, we are so excited to have Charlene Harris with us this week for our episode. Charlene, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about your work and your writing? Sure. I'm Charlene Harris. This is my 42nd year as a published writer. Uh, I've written about, I don't know, four or five series and a few standalones and I don't know, maybe about 35 or 40 short stories. So I've been in the business a long time. I've seen it change phenomenally uh, from the, because my first books were written on a typewriter. Uh, so, And they didn't expect you to be on TikTok then either, did they? <laughs> I have people who do that for me. Yes. Uh, I'm really kind of old school, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I've adapted so far. I mean, it's adapt or die, but there, I actually do sometimes think about the good old days. (laughs) That is fair. Four decades in this business. You, you deserve a cake. Yes. A lot of cakes. Many cakes. cakes. Many Many cakes. 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 All the cakes, really. All of the cakes. Thank you. (laughs) So with all of that, Writing under your belt, all those books, what is your favorite thing that you've written of yours? Not that we have favorite children, but what is what is one of your favorites at the least? One of my, okay. It was a Harper Connolly book, Ice Cold Grave, I think, because I did some things in there that for me were really pushing the emotional envelope. Uh, and I was... You know, it's one of those talks you have with yourself where you say, oh, I can't do that. That's so bad. And that's when you know you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there comes a Probably point in every that. series where you think, I just can't do that to my protagonist. But I really will. That's how you know you have to do it. Yep. That's how you know you have to do my, it. My readers are going to be so mad at me. Uh, I've often heard our job described as chasing up our heroes up trees and throwing rocks at them and trying to find the biggest rock you can find. (laughs) Yeah, I would hate to be one of my protagonists. I I can tell you that. I am so mean. So mean to them. If they were real, we would owe them so many apologies. I know. We are responsible for so much fictional therapy. Exactly. Gosh. (laughs) They yeah, would yeah. murder us. They would. <laughs> that's true. They're that also would... much better at killing than I am. So that's, yeah, that's a good I point. I would not stand a chance. I yeah. saw a thing uh, earlier. Like it was something on Twitter. Someone asked, like, you know, if you had to fight your characters, who would win? And I'm like, absolutely them. They're yeah. violent and have magic. <laughs> they they have skills. They have skills uh, I don't have. Oh my God. Killing is what they do. <laughs> 
That's right. So we had, I'd already asked you the short version of this question, Charlene, but, but when it comes to world building, what do you love doing? What do you enjoy doing when it comes to building your worlds? I like the whole process. I love drawing maps. That's fun. I love figuring out the law enforcement system, which is always very crucial in my books, the economic system, uh, the predominant religion, how it's expressed, uh, racial relations, uh, whether or not gay people can be out, all of that. I can make the way I want it <laughs> rather than the way it actually is because it's my world. <laughs> and as you said, you get to write the rule book and then the characters either have to follow it or, or, or not. And then they're in trouble. I kill them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Harsh, but fair. I'm, I'm an executioner. No doubt about it. <laughs> Sometimes that's what you have to do. Of the worlds you've built, which is which is your favorite? Which was your favorite playground? Oh, the one I'm writing right now, the Gunny Rose series, because that just is way more research intensive than anything else I've ever done. I have to look up stuff all the time for for those books uh, about the 1930s and uh, about the Russian royal family and about her guns because you just can't get anything about guns wrong. Someone someone will tell you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so quickly. So yeah. quickly. That and horses, I understand. <laughs> Those are the two big landmines. Trains, oh, too. Trains, too. I really? hadn't thought about that, but boats, I, I... Boats, I know as well, but trains, I didn't know. Oh, yeah. I can imagine the trains people are very, very trains people. They are very, <laughs> very trains people, as you put it. So I'm, I'm really enjoying this series uh, so much because I have to think about the way they dress. I have to think about what they had to eat. I had to think about whether or not they could have a refrigerator, uh, whether or not the hotel would have uh, a bathroom in the room. Because my grandparents owned a hotel, and there were like two bathrooms per hall. Oh wow! So that was uh, that's a big change, and one you should all be grateful for. <laughs> yes. yes. Any of us who remember dorm showers, like yeah, oh. it's, yeah, it's not, it's not the best. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny. I just I included a, a an actual historical hotel um, in the book I have coming out, and it was one of the earlier ones to do ensuite bathrooms for each each room because it's one of those places you go to take the waters oh. which basically means cleaning yourself <laughs> so it was like a, like a highlight of the room was you get your own bathroom you're gonna need and it you're here. gonna need it <laughs> i would think with a time like the 1930s too it'd be really interesting because different locations within the world are moving more rapidly than others and are catching up to some of these new technologies faster than others and figuring out like, okay, based on exactly where they are, what would they have? What would they be perhaps be interested in, but not have implemented yet? And what is still just completely, you know, on the moon for them as far as it might be? Well, there are so many more catastrophes that happened in my version of America that that's uh, an especially debatable point as to whether they would have amenities or not. 
So, so since our readers may or our listeners may not have read um, the series, it can can you give us any anything about that? Can you tell us a little bit more about your version of America in these books? Sure. America is split into five parts following the assassination of Franklin Roosevelt before he took office. The vice president then didn't automatically become the president. It was kind of, and then in my book, he died too of the Spanish flu. So uh, America's in chaos and splits along the lines that I thought were were quite uh, logical. But then I think a lot of my work is logical and other people don't. As long as it's internally consistent, that's that's where we get to, right? I could see the fault lines uh, where things would divide, and that's what I did. Uh, so there's the poor, there's Dixie, there's Britannia, which is the original 13 colonies minus Georgia, which went with Dixie, of course. Yeah, of course they did. Yeah, tracks. checks out. Yeah. <laughs> There's New America, which is the Plains, and Canada has come down. Of course, you know those Canadians. <laughs> They're just waiting for the chance. Just waiting for it. <laughs> they, they've, they've, they've been waiting since 1812. <laughs> and then Mexico comes up. So there's a wide band of America that's been absorbed into those two countries. Because, of course, Canada wanted Detroit. Yeah. They, they've been angling for a while. They have, and they got it. Can't take your eyes <laughs> off them. Just, no. <laughs> the uh, Russian imperial family has gotten off their 10-year-long flotilla uh, to land in California and have been invited to become the royalty of California, which is now the Holy Russian Empire. I love that. Yes, that's wow. fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it just what you were saying about, you know, it it makes sense to you. I think that that is one of the challenges is like, how do we make the things that make sense to us make sense to our readers? You know, how do you, how do we do that to the, you know, to, to translate that, that, it's going to sound wacky, but I'm going to take you along for the ride, you know? Yeah, just, just, it's like I'm saying, bear with me. There's a point to this. Yeah. You're going <laughs> to like it if you get on board. Yeah. Just get on board with me and we're going to take a trip together. Because we have, I mean, we use that, that expression, suspension of disbelief. And to what extent, you know, do we expect our readers to, to have that kind of buy-in? Like when we say suspension of disbelief, like what, what do we even mean by that? I know, Cass, I feel like this is one of your the phrases that you're kind of like... It is. I don't like it. I <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because I um, just the, the the way I was... I came up through theater, the phrase that was used, I talked about this a couple episodes ago, I think, was um, theater of the imagination more than suspension of disbelief. Because when the audience enters the space, they don't forget reality. They, they don't suspend the idea that they are an audience watching a play... Otherwise, surely someone would get up and, you know, stop all these murders from happening on the stage, right? <laughs> and there's a very funny moment in Blackadder 3 where essentially that does happen. And the prince, who is very stupid, stands up and shouts at Brutus for, for killing Caesar in the middle of play. <laughs> but readers don't actually do that. And, and audiences don't actually do that. But, but they, they are, are choosing, choosing to believe in a different world. And, and um, Tolkien has a whole thing about this that I went off on a rant somewhere recently about this, that... It's secondary belief. It is being mentally and emotionally engaged with this alternate reality 
while you are aware that you are not actually physically engaged with it. So I like those those phrases more than than suspending the disbelief, because I think that makes the reader and audience a more active participant in the story happening. You know, Cassie, you said that we don't know that that readers don't do that. They don't get up and and join in the action. But we don't really know that, do we? <laughs> we they could don't. be. They could, they could be. be. That's true. Our books across the room. I mean, I have thrown they, a book. That's yes. true. <laughs> yeah, I think I tend to think of it as as willing to play along. Mm-hmm. Like I've invited you to my sandbox. I have built something in it. Will you come play with me? And to what extent they're willing to come and and play with me? That's a good way to put it. Instead of throwing the book across the room, you don't close the book and be like, I have to drive to New Orleans and put a stop to this. <laughs> you, don't, <laughs> you don't believe it that much. That's every writer's fear, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that basically, isn't that misery? Is that the Stephen King that, yeah, I don't do yeah. horror. But yeah, yeah, I think that's the one where it's like, oh, you took this too seriously. Hopefully readers don't go that far. But hopefully they are co-creating and, and engage, like you said, engaging, the, entering the world willingly in, in, in their minds, which I think is what makes it so fun, because then all the things we can't control about their response also helps shape the world, their expectations and their imaginations fill in what we don't and what we can't for everyone. Sometimes readers do get overinvested. It becomes way too real for them, or they don't realize that it's you who wrote, wrote wrote that i mean they don't these people don't really live anywhere except in here and you can't get in there (laughs) well and i think that that's a fair point too that not every reader in the world is like your reader or my reader you know that you have to write to your reader not to everybody because not everyone's gonna buy in i can't send an invitation to the whole world to come play in my playground because a lot of them are going to be like no i don't like your playground or they won't even open the invitation they'll just throw it in the trash even if you have it marked rsvp they won't (laughs) they will not do it no manners no manners no manners no manners just we're not raised right you know, it's like we, we were joking about the, the, the train people and the horse people. And, and really, some of those people are our readers, too. But but there's always that there's always that guy when you write anything historical. Sorry, Marshall, it's always a guy. It is. No, yeah. you're right. Yeah. You're 100% right. <laughs> <laughs> Who comes in with the like, but is that authentic? And it's like, you know what? That guy who just wants to pick apart the authenticity, even when actually it is, it's just challenging someone's notion of it you know what that's it's not my reader what would you how do you answer a person like that if they actually turn up and challenge you uh in front of a an audience i was gonna say if it's in my email i hit delete (laughs) (laughs) that's not so easy when they're right no when they're right there that's true (laughs) he's still there I had a guy try to do that with me at a book signing once, and, and he was trying to one-up me on ancient Rome facts, and I just kept, like, really cheerfully topping everything he told me. Like, I had no idea that he was trying to put me down. I just pretended, like, oh, yeah, isn't that great? And also this. And also this. I have, in fact, done my research. I have probably done more research than you. Really brightly and cheerfully. You played that, like, improv, like, yes and yes, yes. game. I was yes-anding Roman history with him. And he eventually got bored and walked away. (laughs) And so the fact that I can usually bring the citations helps. 
I'm like, well, Symes Manual of Arms, the supplement, says that this, and it's like, oh, okay, so she actually does know 18th century military crap. Never, never mind. I would never I haven't read my Symes on anything 18th century military. I just, there, I just are pl- there are plenty of people who can, and I know who they are, and I can refer you to them. <laughs> like, go talk to that guy. The advantage of not writing historical fantasies, you get less of that. Not none of yes. that, but less of that. Yes, but, but, you, but the amazing thing is you still do, even if it's like a completely made-up place. I'm thinking oh, about yeah. all because... people complaining about rings of power. They're not train guys, they're elf guys, and they have <laughs> really strong feelings about Numenor and things. And it's like, dude. I know. I've read more debates about... Uh, the fight Gandalf has with the Balrog and how long it would take the Balrog to fall. And I'm just going, oh, for God's sake. (laughs) No, I I do have to say, if you got through the Silmarillion, then you've probably earned that. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's like when you're, when you're reading a fantasy involves like a physics problem where you've drawn a diagram and there's like velocity times but the acceleration and the you've got no you've gone where i can't follow stop yes (laughs) i can't do that much math (laughs) i won't do that much math no i refuse to do it for a balrog (laughs) acceleration Although, if you are a physics teacher, if anyone listening to this is a physics teacher, I highly recommend making that yes. like a, a prob- a word problem on your next test, <laughs> and then please send it to us, <laughs> yes, so we can laugh. We want to know the I, answer. I would love yeah, to I want to see the answer, but so bad. Just do not make me do the math. I was very bad at Actually, physics yeah. the first time. I have yeah. not gotten better at it in the last twenty years. <laughs> Is acceleration due to gravity a constant through the different realms? <laughs> See, valid these, question. These are these are the questions that remain unanswered. Exactly. That's that's the sort of thing you need a spreadsheet for. And <laughs> what is what is the velocity of a laden swallow? African or European? <laughs> these are the things you need to know if you're a world builder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like when you're when you're doing your world building, do you like have a reader in mind? Like this is the person who's reading my book. This is the kind of person who's reading my book. Or do you just kind of do your thing and trust they're going to find you? Uh, I don't have a, a reader in mind because I have so many different kinds of readers. I think that would be like trying to throw a dart and hitting, you know, a pinpoint. People read for their own purposes and their own reasons and their own entertainment and I just write what would entertain me and hope that it will entertain other people. That's all I've got to go by. If I think something's funny, I figure somebody else is going to think it's funny. Well, clearly it's worked for you. And you've got, you know, lots of devoted fans <laughs> and who, who, who keep buying into your worlds. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. So I think that has worked for me. But I think that's, I think that's a, good a good point, point too, that we think about, like, what, what would I enjoy reading? Like, I am, in fact, a valid audience. <laughs> yeah. Yes, a very informed valid audience. Uh, I hate when I'm reading a, a book and I, I can't believe it. I'm just going, oh, this is this is stupid. Uh, you didn't seduce me with your wonderful world building and you didn't give me that satisfying yes i'll go along with you on this journey i just have to close the book and walk away and i hate doing that what are some of the things that do that to you that break your ability to believe in a world uh if someone is too good to be true that's always a a problem if 
people don't have any flaws, if people behave in a manner that I think is ridiculous, uh, whether or not it's, it's true to them is, is, I don't know. I'm not writing them. <laughs> but if, if, in my opinion, no one in the history of the world ever acted like this, then I am not going to want to follow that non-person into whatever <laughs> world they're going into. You know what's one that has I've realized has 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 made me close more than one book, and I'm not going to name names because the one I'm thinking of is like really popular, and I'm sure people are going to fight me on it. Um, but when the world feels like a rat maze built for the protagonist and no one else, yeah, when it feels mm. like this world only exists for this protagonist to like run through and achieve things. And only the protagonist could, by the way. They're the only one who is suited to this particular rat maze. And I'm just like, well, th- this this isn't world building. This is this is like making a cr- making yeah. this is making a weird yeah. experiment for your protagonist. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Uh, I was now Naomi Novik can do that. Her School of Mance trilogy is just amazing. The world she's built there, and the, these kids are go to a school that is literally trying to kill them and they can't leave until graduation and at graduation they have to walk through a hall of creatures who will eat them so it all depends on strategy and who can get at the front of the wave of kids trying to get out uh (laughs) where in that placement you should be in the middle probably so the first ones get eaten and you can get through while the monsters are still eating but you don't but you don't want to be the last one you don't want to be the last guy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know maybe the monsters would be full and but you could just stroll on through while they you know are, are sitting back. They're, they're, uh, they're, i mean i'm it could be a valid strategy <laughs> possibly but I, I just love the world building in those because if a lesser writer had done it i would think Oh, bullshit. But, <laughs> yeah. but because they only know of it, I believe in it all the way through. And I, I think that is a big, a big thing there where you can feel that if you stray from like the set story at all, that the world still holds up outside of that realm or what you're telling about the world and what you're showing about the world, that those line up. One that has been coming to mind to me is... There was a show on Netflix a few years back called Bloodline. It's not a science fiction fantasy show at all, but it was one of the recurring things in that show was they kept talking about, like, my family is very important in this town. My family has all these ties. But as the show goes on, you learn more about who's in this family. It does, The family itself does not really have any connections. They're not, like, and there is no extended family. There's It's literally, like, their father moved to town, married the mother, had four kids, and of those four kids, three of them are losers. So, like, who is the strong, who is the strong, like, family that they keep talking about in terms of, like, we're a very well-respected family? Because you never see it in terms of what they actually mm. show you, but they keep telling you that. It's informed prestige, not... Yeah. Yeah, and not earned nothing the of what they do actually shows you shows you that in practice and the more i watched the show the more that aspect of it really started to stand out to me 
it's like we have the whole, you know, like show versus tell thing. And I think a lot of times people take that on a very like sentence by sentence craft level. Yeah. But like, no, it's it's actually a global structural thing, too. You, you can't tell the reader something is true in the text and then show them the opposite or not show them those things. <laughs> yeah. That is true. I feel like I so, see that one a lot with like informed intelligence in characters where like, oh, yeah. We're told yeah. this character is so smart, and yet they are constantly doing, and everyone in the world tells this character they're so smart, and yet they're constantly doing just the most dumbass things. <laughs> and the one I'm going to call out is a classic, and it's actually one of my favorite literary characters from my favorite book, The Scarlet Pimpernel. And Marguerite Blakeney is constantly referred to as the cleverest woman in Europe, and yet she is guaranteed to walk into every <laughs> single trap set for her <laughs> every time. And I'm just like, these just, they don't add up. They don't add up, which is why I, I would love to rewrite a version where she actually is clever and setting <laughs> traps rather than falling into them. But that's, that's, that's that sounds point. like a worthy thing to do. I really <laughs> want to redeem her and actually make her the cleverest woman <laughs> because in the originals, <laughs> she's just not, she's like, just not, she's witty. Is, but her she's, only clever thing was convincing everyone else she was clever. Uh, pretty much. What does this say about the uh, the opinion of the rest of the women in Europe if she's right? the pinnacle? <laughs> like, excuse and me. she falls for everything? <laughs> I'm like, gosh, a six-year-old would see their way out of that problem, and yet you just strolled merrily into it, and oh, now you've been kidnapped again. Again. Uh, it's because she's the cleverest woman in Europe, <laughs> and she's so sure of that, she doesn't see the pitfalls yeah. ahead of her. <laughs> I wish the books had that kind of character depth. They don't. I mean, I love them dearly, but they don't. That that does remind me how in the Sherlock Holmes story they talk about Irene Adler is the woman who bested Sherlock Holmes. Like she didn't really best him. She just was like, oh, he figured out where my where my safe is. I better clean it out and leave town. <laughs> like it wasn't that you know. She she bested him by walking away. <laughs> Maybe there's out. A, there's a lesson there for all of us. He does a really <laughs> obvious trick to get her to reveal where the safe is, when she's like, oh, I revealed where the safe is. I best clean it out and get out of here. Which is why my favorite take on her is in the show Elementary, and I only ever watched, like, the first two seasons, but where, spoiler alert, um, Irene Adler is, in fact, Moriarty. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Natalie Dormer. And it's Stanley Dormer. So, I, <laughs> so my little heart goes pitter-patter. But, like, that was brilliant. I was like, oh, she actually is smarter than Sherlock in that case. That Irene, the Irene Adler was the biggest trick she pulled on him as Moriarty. Yeah, yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah, that was very well Loved done. Loved it. Loved it. So we were talking about, a little bit ago, Naomi Novik, and among many writers who I think can can pull off believe just about anything that you write. Do you do you think that it's it's entirely just the skill in writing it, or are there some things that you're like, I just I'm not going to buy it no matter what? Like, <laughs> can can we can we as writers literally make anything believable, or do do even the most skilled among us have our limits? If you're really skilled, you're not going to set yourself up for failure. You're going to make the best world you can. You're not going to try to sell people a stupid world. If you're really great water, you can think of a better world. I mean, surely. Or I won't, wouldn't be the cleverest woman in Europe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, I, I think it's, that's a really great way to put it in thinking about what do we as writers decide we're going to work with? How many things are we going to try to hang on this world? Because it can become like a Christmas tree. And if you put, you know, 
too many different concepts on it, all of a sudden it falls over, right? Or the lights short circuit or, oh no, I've set a fire in the house. Um, by trying to do, yeah, like every knowing, year. knowing the right balance, I think is, is a, a part of the world building craft for writers. You have to give readers something recognizable. You have to give them something they can feel familiar with to make the rest of the world more credible. Look at the hobbits. They got to eat four or five meals a day. Everyone can relate to that. Highly <laughs> relatable. <laughs> yes. The desire just, to, at least, certainly. Just want to stay home and eat good food, and that's all I need to do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been reading The Hobbit to my kids, and I think that that is probably one of the most like relatable and like anchoring things about that text is that Tolkien continually puts in Bilbo wishes he was home. He's thinking of his, you know, his little Hobbit hole and how he wishes he was there by his fire, and it's like. I, I will believe all the goblins and the wargs and the giant eagles because I have someone who's telling me something so familiar and so relatable. Yeah, they have to pay their bills. They have to reupholster their couch. They have to they have to pay their insurance. They have to do all these things. Something something that people can say, oh, yeah, I do that, too. So I'll fall off a a bridge with that person or I'll kill a Balrog with that person. I think games recognizing the the uncomfortable parts of our shared existence, whether we're in the real world or a second world or a kind of blend of the two where we're basing fantasy off of the real world, like rain is wet and uncomfortable in all of these places. Your feet get cold and it's not fun. You know, it's like these little tactile touchstones that you can you can come back to. Think of how wet and cold people got when there was no weatherproofing and no rubber boots and you had to build a fire and everything was wet. You didn't have paracord to pitch your tent with. Mm. Canvas tents smell like cheese when they get wet. <laughs> they do. So, they do. It's really gross. Yeah. <laughs> it's I did not know that. Yeah, you really do. <laughs> Rowan and I have um, reenactor and Renfair solidarity on some things like that. <laughs> It's like, it oh, yeah, it's like really unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, and wool smells like an angry sheep when oh, it's it wet. Really so you does. can just imagine all these, you know, like just a rainy day has all kinds of extra, extra fun. The things that were used for waterproofing before modern materials made it smell even worse. The, the lanolin and the things that you would put, mm -hmm. which would keep you drier and you would smell like the, the muck in a barn because an that's kind sheep. of what you were using. Yeah. yeah. It's like, hmm, trade-offs. Yes. But if everybody smelled that way, then, you know, you're just like, yeah, that's that's just how things are. This is what wet army smells like. Yeah. 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 Angry sheep. So since I, we're in here writing a mix of pure second world fantasy and what and we might dub urban fantasy or historical fantasy, depending on what we're writing, do, do you all see different challenges in making making ourselves credible between writing second world fantasy versus writing things that are a little bit more um, real world offshoots? Well, I, I guess with urban fantasy, you just have to get people to accept that there are werewolves and vampires and <laughs> elves and fairies and all sorts of creatures like that. But the rest of the world is pretty recognizable. So I think that's pretty easy. But if you are saying this world is fundamentally unlike 
the world we live in, it's you're going to have a more uphill battle and you have to work harder, I think. Uh, I read a, a mystery set on another planet. It was really good, but it was it was hard work, too, to say, okay, I'm in the familiar framework of a murder mystery, but it's on Mars. I can't remember if it was really on Mars or not. <laughs> and there was a completely different way you had to breathe and a completely different society and a completely different law enforcement system. And it was it was a lot to absorb <laughs> that you were actually literally not in a fantasy. Well, I guess it was a fantasy world, but you're on a different planet. And that uh, that made a lot of difference in the narrative, of course. Well, it ought to. I think it's different ways of engaging with reader expectations because when you're writing like a historical fantasy, they're going to be informed by what they know or what they think they know about that historical period. What they think they know may not be accurate, but you still have to teach them where, if you've done an alternate universe, where your version of it is different from the actual history, as opposed to a second world, you're starting with more of a blank slate. The reader is still likely to be influenced by the expectations your aesthetic creates. You know, if, if you've got a medievalist aesthetic or a spacey aesthetic, they're going to be bringing some assumptions to it. Yeah. But I think they also know that you're, they know that you're building something and, and are probably more prepared to be taught what your world looks like as opposed to historical or urban fantasy where their assumptions are, are going to be a lot firmer because they, they're based on the real world. They think they know. Yeah. Like, I feel like I, I, I admire Well Done Urban Fantasy because it, on one hand, it's, it's an, an, you know, a, one insert. You're like, well, this world has vampires. But getting readers to buy into that when everything else is so familiar, like, there's definitely a skill there. And definitely, you know, I, that I'm, I have not tried to play with that exactly and so it's like I think about like that that would be a different a different challenge to say yep it's it's Chicago but hold on and and get readers to come along and play with that I know for me where the line usually ends up like if you tell me like this is Chicago but there's werewolves and vampires I'm usually like okay but where it usually breaks down for me is when like the fact that there's werewolves and vampires is like the world's worst kept secret but yet it's still treated like it's a secret that that nobody <laughs> like that's where it usually falls apart. Like if your world building, not to name any specific things, requires multiple use of memory erasure magic <laughs> all the time. Who would be surprised? I mean, nobody's going to be surprised if this guy comes up and says, dum, 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 I am a vampire. You go, uh, Okay. I figured this would happen someday. Yeah. <laughs> I knew this was in the offing and now it's really happened. Yeah. I mean, you tell me that, I think it's what I like about, about urban fantasy is you tell me it's like, ah, this is our world, except there's werewolves and magic. And I'm like, good. I was always hoping. <laughs> I'm very willing to believe in that. waiting for that. It's like, good. I secretly hope this was the case. Glad to see that it is. But then I love seeing, I like the worlds where it, where it's not a secret, where it is open then you get to see the fun of what does it change? Is there a fast food chain that caters to the werewolves that, you know, they don't cook their meat there. Like those kinds of details are what really make it for me in, in a modern day, like urban fantasy setting. That's a good idea. <laughs> Feel free to steal it. 
I've, I've written a lot of urban fantasy, obviously, and uh, coming up with the differences in society that are small in terms of no Balrogs, but large in terms of the difference it would make in your everyday life if if there were vampires and werewolves in your world. It would change the rules quite a bit. But you always have to have a system of checks and balances. I'm a great believer in that. There can't be anything uh, that is going to win hands down, or it would have. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think you, you have to you have to have some drawbacks to those new additions to society. Well, yeah, and that's that's part of that. It's just you know, making the incredible credible is like well, but how does that work actually? Because if 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 you've got the perfect fighting machine, you're right. They would have wiped everything else out a long time ago. What do you think is one of your favorite? adjustments to the rules that you've made in in your own books oh um a lot of people and the original dracula was a daywalker oh yes and i had to weigh what vampire lore i wanted to keep there's a the uh, there's an old tradition that vampires can't cross running water i i don't know why tanya huff came up with the best reason for that any writer ever did and i wasn't going to compete with her on that because i couldn't come up <laughs> with anything <half> smart. <laughs> so i just ignored it that's that's the great thing about writing about a supernatural creature you're you're at liberty to to include the bits that serve your purpose and discard the bits that don't work for you so but i had to give them uh, a way to announce their presence without everybody going ah! So I established the fact that that they could drink artificial blood, mm. which is actually a real thing. Uh, it's not in wide use, but the Japanese developed real blood, well, a blood substitute some years ago. Obviously, it's not as good as true blood, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's a real thing. I just boosted it. And that's such a good thing, too, because like that then becomes almost the, a tentpole concept within the world that allows so many other things to be possible and, and to be played with. The vampires can say, we're not threatening. We don't have to kill you. It's all in the past. All those murders. <laughs> all those bad things we did, it's yeah. all forgotten now. Now that we have blood we can drink that doesn't come from you. We'll be very good, we promise. Yes, not... <laughs> Well, it's like like you were saying earlier that the fun of developing like the legal systems and and economic systems those can be such powerful checks on whatever magic or creatures you're introducing. Uh, it's what I did in the Oven Cycle was I introduced magic and then it was like all right, well why isn't everything just why don't the magic people rule? It's like ah, ah there's laws against it. There, there's laws saying if if you've got magical power you can't be consul, and that's that seemed very reasonable that a society that had you know a small percentage of the population has magical ability would make that rule saying no you don't you don't get to be our boss <laughs> yeah you're not so special the gods like you sure fine but <laughs> <laughs> they like other people too we're only going to tolerate so much because you're still mortal and yeah those sorts of things i think also then give you good plot you know those give you tension for the characters to push against and, and to challenge what what constraints are put upon them too Though that does sometimes give you, especially with like vampire or werewolf stories, where you end up having your characters having that sort of meta conversation where you can be like, no, our vampires are like this. And therefore, 
so you'll have this like so does this mean like i can't you know i can't eat pizza anymore it's like no no garlic's not a thing it's fine good you're you're fine you can you can still eat pizza that's fine you can have garlic on it or in, in a society where perhaps there's more of them or they're more socially tolerated like is it is it bad manners to eat a garlicky pizza around your vampire friends is that yeah is that just very, is that really rude is that a little gauche you can do it but you it's it's rude just like it's rude for them to drink somebody else's blood in front of you. Like, that's right. just like... Yeah, just... I mean... So the social niceties. What if, what if it's no one you know? Even still. <laughs> still awkward. Still, still awkward. Just rude. Because <laughs> there's the big erotic element. Nobody likes to watch someone else make out. No. No. Boundaries. Boundaries. Not no one, but still. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. As the internet have just taught us, if you can mm. think of anything that anyone might want to do, someone, someone, someone will do it. Yeah. Someone will do it. And enjoy it. Yeah. Rule 34 stands. Forever and ever. <laughs> I love all these things we're talking about because so many of them are like the small details that are what make a world credible. The, the fact that it touches little things like etiquette, I think is what makes some of our big world building choices feel real. If they touch the little things. Oh, I think so, too. The devil is in the details. I feel like with those big, bold world-building choices that you can make, it is kind of like, did you go all in with it? And I think that it's if it's trickling all the way down to the details, like, you've, you've committed. Like, I think that readers can sense when we haven't committed completely <laughs> to an idea. And the, the bigger and bolder and, and, and greater of a change it is, I think the more we do kind of have to commit to, like, all right, so I can I can easily envision a a world in which it's Chicago and Dairy Queen doesn't exist. That's not going to take a whole <laughs> lot to push over the edge. But with vampires, we're going to we're going to have to commit more to that and invest more. You know, I don't know. Even I, the, dairy, I, I, the Dairy Queen one. Now that I think about it, it's probably more terrifying. I, I believe but... vampires well before no Dairy Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, that's that would take a big leap, especially in Texas, because <laughs> you know that that's what the ad says. DQ. That's what I like about Texas. <laughs> I, I can't imagine a writer not committing. Yeah, you have to. You have that's, to. That's your job is to is to inhabit this world fully enough for your readers to to join you in it. You have to commit yourself to that. I can't imagine not doing that, really. If, if you don't believe it, who else will? That's exactly right. We're not crazy people who actually believe our own worlds. Just a little bit. We kind of I mean, are. Just a little. Just a little. We could. <laughs> we could. We might believe that the world ought to be that way. Yeah. <laughs> that it would be a nicer world if it were that way. <laughs> Because who would be the smartest person in that world? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, so some of the worlds I've created, I, I don't, I, I, maybe not. I don't, it, we'll, we'll let it stay imaginary, but. You'd but... at least be genre savvy in it. You'd at least, it's yeah. true. Yeah. You'd know like what towns not to go to. Yeah, true. that's right. You would be able to navigate that world very well. <laughs> Just hear that one sound in the distance like, nope, nope, time to leave. Ah, hark, I hear the dragon mating call. Time to leave. <laughs> Don't want to be anywhere near that. No. They are not careful what they do with their wings and their fire during their mating dance. Oh, You're a, probably right. Yeah, that's a David Attenborough special just waiting to be recorded. Oh, I want that now. 
I do. I want it. Oh, I do. His calm voice saying, Yes. <laughs> and unfortunately, the young dragon perished. <laughs> Stomped exactly. on by his mother. <laughs> Wipe a tear away for the young dragon. Yeah. Yes. What I do for baby lions when they die. It's like, oh, that's so sad. Yes. Nature, nature is a cruel mistress. It is. So we are we are approaching the end of our hour, but I thought it might be a nice thing to do before we do our wrap to talk about the craft of this. Like, how do you layer in world building? Where and how and and what do you do to to layer in those incredible things in a way that that draws readers in instead of making them go, whoa, whoa, nope, too much. I'm out. I've never codified it to myself. When people ask me technical questions, I'm pretty much at a loss. <laughs> I just I just write what makes sense to me and so far that's worked. If you if you think someone's likable, then the reader is gonna think they're likable. And for the problem I have is with some of the people I've I intend to be disagreeable, uh, maybe <laughs> even repellent. People go, oh, I love him. <laughs> are you are you nuts? Some some of us have terrible taste in men. I'm, I I speak. I, I am speak, sure fond of men. I speak on behalf of my people. Um, we do love a bad boy. <laughs> do I do really bad taste in fictional men? In fictional men. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, it, it's f- fiction is a safe place to love a love a terrible, terrible human being. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I, I think that's where people ought to love terrible people is in a book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, much better, much better to get that out in fiction than to actually pick up some of these guys in person. I used to read a really good series. It was a detective series, but the guys, the hero's uh, fiance was so horrible. I can't remember what her name was, but let's just assume it was Sarah. A group of us created a Die Sarah Die Club, thinking how much happier the hero would be (laughs) if she would just kick the bucket. We were all going, someone kill her. Please kill this woman. She was just an ass. (laughs) Well, if it's into a murder mystery series, then surely that was bound to happen sooner or later. (laughs) Sooner or later. That would be the murder you'd have to solve. Sooner or later. I don't think anybody ever murdered her, which was a real pity. Uh, But he finally wised up and broke up with her. Oh, good. None too soon. (laughs) So the second best option that could have occurred here. Yeah, he was not the cleverest woman in Europe. (laughs) Not catching on fast enough on fast enough at all <laughs> well there's an interesting element of that too of like obviously many of us in real life make poor choices and drag them along for probably longer than than they should oh, and and... you don't have to call me out like this <laughs> i'm sorry on the open mic don't call me out like this. naming no names <laughs> But and so it's it's a very realistic thing to happen. But there's a question of like how how long are your readers really willing to go along with a protagonist's stupid choices, even if they're realistic and authentic and and quite true to life? Like we we sometimes expect better out of fiction than than we expect out. <laughs> In your protagonist, anyway, your protagonist should have something people 
think <laughs> it's really great, you know? Some talent, some some wisdom, or even if they could just run really fast. <laughs> I, mean, I can't do that. Run really fast away from the bad girlfriend. Or <laughs> away from the bad girlfriend. <laughs> uh, you, you just think maybe they might make better choices, maybe slower than we would like them to. But sooner or later, they will they will see the light and follow through and make good choices. There's a point at which te- like tension becomes just aggravation, and you don't want to cross that with your reader, where it's like the tension is gone. Now I'm just annoyed. Yeah. So I, I do think sometimes about how much of that tension comes from what like what the story is trying to tell you, rather than what's necessarily common sense. Uh, what's jumping to mind is in Breaking Bad. So much of the audience hated Walter's wife, even though she was the one with the very reasonable opinion of, please stop being a meth-making crime lord. <laughs> um, fair. <laughs> fair. But, like, because, especially in the early seasons, her presence as a normal person who doesn't want to be involved in in the meth business of, of New Mexico made her an impediment to the fun things you that the audience wanted Walter to do. So therefore, she was terrible, even in the framing of the show, even though everything she actually did was probably the smart, reasonable thing to do. <laughs> you know, I have to kill characters like that uh, because they, they just slow the action down. It's like in the Suki books, Grandma had to go. Because she was in the way of Suki exploring her whole new life. And I hated to do it, but it was for the best. She, she would just offer too much sensible, real advice. She's, and, and, she's in a better place now with fewer worries and concerns. Well, that's absolutely true. So that would be a bad idea. Maybe not. And you can't have that because you want them to yeah. go and do all the bad ideas. Yeah. That's where it's, that's it's, where the story fun is is again throwing the rocks at them. Look, guys, the book has to move along, so you have to die. <laughs> Sorry, it's like the classic of why young adult protagonists never have parents because they couldn't do any of this stuff. That's right. If they actually had parents, if someone was saying, like, "Um, where functional, are you going? reasonable parents," <laughs> yeah, no, you're not doing that. Drew do all that. She's always taking off in her roadster, and her dad never goes. <laughs> And where are you going, little Missy? <laughs> no, you will be back at home by five o'clock to make my supper. You know, that never happens. No. It just makes me think of how yeah. they intentionally made Buffy's mom obtuse and and involved in her own thing. So then when she finally finds out the truth, she's like, you know, I was washing a lot of blood out of your clothes and I should have cued in on that. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't, I didn't want to pry. <laughs> Should have been more involved. Now that now that I see it, it's it's. I feel stupid for not seeing. It, <laughs> it all falls into place. And this is usually the point in our recording that we sort of look at each other and go, "Was there anything we wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about?" So, was there anything that we wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about? I think we did a pretty good job of hitting the points that we I think so. intended I think to. So, but. Charlene, if there's anything else that you wanted to to talk about or explore, or I just want to say my new book is finally out after two delays. Woo! The Serpent in Heaven, and it's got a beautiful cover, and I'm uh, very, very glad after waiting for 
oh, 10 months now mm, that is finally out. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was going to be out in February. Then it got bumped to July and then it got bumped to November. <sighs> it's been happening to so many yeah. books. Just the. Well, I'm glad it's not just me. It's not just you. <laughs> no, I, just I know you. several people who've had just one thing after another, whether it's printing delays or, or what have you. Yeah. But yay for getting past the delays. So which book is this in the series? It's this the is... fourth, and I've turned in the fifth yay. one. Yay, awesome. That's always good to hear. Five days ahead of time. Woo. So what's the Impressive. first book in this series? So so listeners know where to start. The first book was uh, An Easy Death. Nice. Uh, and this one is um, The Serpent in Heaven. So I'm on a roll with the titles. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you, Arne Charlene, and I appreciate so much um, your insight and from a long and wonderful career. And we look forward to reading the next books and seeing what what you do next. Thank you very much. This has been a very uh, relaxing conversation for me. I've enjoyed it a lot. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you around the real world or the one we have to suspend our disbelief for. We'll meet in a fictional world and have a great time. We'll eat four meals a day. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on December 21st, where we'll be talking about the end of the year and how a new year is celebrated or even defined in your fictional worlds. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including pre-ordering Cass's latest, The Bloodstained Shade, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochist.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.